Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us the ability to read your word and that you've promised to make the reading and especially the preaching effective for salvation. And so we ask, Lord, that by your spirit, you would accompany your word, that you would use it to build up your church for the edification of the body, and that you would do this for your glory. In the name of your Son, Christ Jesus, amen. Our sermon text this evening comes from 1 Corinthians. Not very far into 1 Corinthians, it's 1 Corinthians 1. It's going to be verses 18 through 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. This is the word of the Lord. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. How many books, if you had to guess, were written on communication? You're not going to learn tonight because I have no idea. But if I was going to hazard a guess, I would say that there's quite a few. It seems that every year there's a new New York Times bestseller on how to best communicate with people. In fact, Forbes magazine lays out three rules for communicating persuasively. You've got to focus on the other person. You've got to visualize your argument in outline form, and you have to choose your words carefully. And this seems like good advice in general. And yet in classical education, communicating well and persuasively was just as much about the beauty of what was said as the content of what was said. In fact, two-thirds of classical rhetoric had nothing to do with content. Aristotle's work on rhetoric, published in the 4th century BC, shook the ancient world with its insights. And these insights, even today, can perhaps even help a person win friends and influence people, to borrow the line from Dale Carnegie. See, Aristotle pointed out that persuasion and rhetoric is an art form. And to be effective, the argument itself must have validity, and he called that logos. Moreover, the character of the speaker must be persuasive. They have to be passionate, and they have to communicate that to the people that are hearing them, and he calls that ethos. And the emotions of the hearer must be molded to accommodate what the the orator is actually saying, and he called that pathos. And so these three things, logos, ethos, and pathos, formed the foundation for what was considered good rhetoric in the ancient world and especially in Corinth, the time of Paul's writing. And the list goes on for for how to best employ argumentation, how best to appeal to emotion, and ultimately how to win the day with a strong argument that's thoughtfully crafted and beautifully delivered. Well-crafted rhetoric today, just as much as in the ancient world, is one of those things that people just tend to appreciate. And yet with all of this knowledge well-established in the background for Paul, Paul appeals to a very different way of seeing the world. 
And this takes us to our first point, verses 18 through 20 on folly of the cross. See, Paul begins by saying, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And this would have been shocking to the Corinthian audience, not because the word of the cross is folly. See, the word of the cross is, is folly, and they would have thought that makes sense because this word of the cross is understood as word whose content is the cross of Jesus Christ. And this folly is the type of absolute and total foolishness that a parent might, might feel when their oldest child perhaps tells them, Dad, I want to drop out of school and pursue a life of crime. Say, so that's folly. That's foolishness. What are you doing? You're throwing your life away. This makes no sense. It's a terrible idea. See, in Corinth, it would have made complete sense that the word of the cross is folly. Corinth had been destroyed by Rome in 146 BC, completely leveled to the ground. And Rome had left it sitting there for a hundred years before rebuilding it in 44 BC. And this time rebuilt under Roman rule and under Roman regulation. And so by the time that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, they were a thriving cosmopolitan city. They were like the New York or London of their day. The people in Corinth had culture, they had class, they had money, they had time for leisure, and they were discerning enough to listen to good speakers and to throw out the bad ones. But they also had Roman rule. And they knew that crucifixion was a death for the common criminal. They knew that crucifixion was the kind of death that was intended to make a point. There was no greater humiliation in the Roman Empire than to be nailed to a cross publicly and displayed as a warning to any of those who might be watching who felt like maybe flexing their muscles against the Roman Empire. Crucifixion was how the Roman Empire decisively put down rebellion. When a political group seemed to threaten the Roman status quo, a Roman governor would just go and find the leader of the opposition and nail him to a cross, and then he would watch all of the followers of this movement melt away back to their hidey holes and watch the end of that rebellion. That was what the cross should have resulted in. Because you see, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, was a peace that didn't just happen, it was ruthlessly enforced. And so for Paul to claim that the message of the cross is folly would make sense to the Corinthians. They'd say, yeah, that is ridiculous to preach something about a cross. But the thing that doesn't make sense to the Corinthians is that Paul says, this is folly to those who are perishing. It should have been folly to the wise. It should have been folly to the discerning. But yet Paul goes on to clarify what he's getting after. The word of the cross is the power of God to those who are being saved. This is how God plans to save his people. A message about an event that completely baffles the wisdom of its day is the message of salvation. And yet Paul points out that this was what was promised from the very beginning. This is promised all along. And Paul grounds this plan of salvation where he, he takes this quotation from Isaiah 29, 14 and says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discernment the discerning I will thwart. But the context of, of Isaiah's quote here is a little bit helpful because Isaiah 29, 14 is actually longer than what Paul quotes. Isaiah is in the context of recounting the words of God. He's, he's speaking in the prophetic oracle. He says, thus saith the Lord, and then everything that follows is the word of God. And he says, because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, and wonder upon wonder, 
and the wisdom of the wise men shall perish, and the discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. See, what Isaiah looked forward to is God's response to this folly of rejecting God by God flipping wisdom on its head. And so in the line of Isaiah's prophecy, because God's people were proving the coldness and falsehood of their confession by saying the right things while pursuing after idols, God planned to do a wonder among them. This wisdom would be shown to be nothing in comparison with the power of God. So Paul takes this prophecy and he points to its fulfillment in Christ Jesus. Who would have thought that Jesus Christ, a carpenter from a backwater town in Galilee, a minor outpost of the Roman Empire, how would how would we think that he would be the one to bring salvation to the world? And who would have thought that even if this Jesus would bring salvation, he would bring it through this ultimate humiliation of crucifixion? Such a thought could only have been perceived as foolishness, or as Paul says, as folly. So Paul moves to verse 20, and he, makes, he takes three questions. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Where are all these people who should know this wisdom and speak wisdom? Where are they? You see, Paul knows exactly where they are. They're in the public square. They're out in the seats of honor, enjoying the praise and the adulation of the crowds. They're getting crowned with laurel wreaths on their heads and walking around very proud of themselves for being so wise. But for Paul, they're not in the place that would really make a difference for them. They're not in the church. And Paul's threefold question here is an echo of another passage of Isaiah. Paul loves to quote and echo Isaiah. This time the echo comes from Isaiah 33, 18. The only other place where this format of questioning appears, this threefold question. And in this passage, <clears throat> Isaiah sets his question in the context of of people seeing the beauty of the realized kingdom. They've seen the promised land. They're freed from insolent speech, obscure stammering, and instead they see Zion, immovable and everlasting, the city of the Lord and dwelt by his majesty. Paul's use of this imagery makes it clear that this city, this Zion, is only accessible through Jesus Christ. And it was purchased for us by Christ's crucifixion. So where are these people that Paul is asking about? They're not at Zion. And so if God has given us a message that we see as foolishness, then it would only be fitting that the means God has appointed should match this foolishness. And this takes us to our second point, verses 21 and following, the folly of preaching. So verse 21 falls as the central point of Paul's logic in this section. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And really, Paul is laying out this increasing sense of, of momentum and landing it there at the end. See, Paul says all these things are true, so the wisdom of man cannot lead to salvation. Instead, God purposed through the folly of literally preaching. And you're, if you're reading in the ESV, you might see a footnote here that says what we preach in the text and at the bottom it says, or through preaching. And in the Greek, this is ambiguous. And Paul is using a term that he could have easily clarified. Is this the content of the, of the message? Is this Christ? 
or is this the means that he's appointed preaching? And because Paul has has chosen to leave this intentionally ambiguous to the hearers, they would have heard both as viable options. And we see that in Paul's logic, both actually have a place. See, God holds out salvation through the folly of a crucified God. And he holds this salvation out through the folly of preaching. What does this preaching tell you? Well, to you who do not trust in Christ, hear the word of God through the means that he is appointed and know that he holds out life to you, life and peace through preaching. He holds life and peace out to you through your hearing of Christ and him crucified, freely offered to you repentance and faith. He beckons you to come, repent and believe the good news. But to you who are weak and struggling, hear the word of God that your Savior did not ascend to the heights of earthly political power to save you. He descended into the depths of hell and he has accomplished everything on your behalf. And your strength or your weakness does nothing to add to your salvation. Christ has earned salvation for you and he's promised to never leave you nor forsake you. And so you can trust him because he's faithful. And if you are strong and zealous, Christian, hear the word of God that your confidence is given to you. Yes, that you might be assured of your salvation, but also that you might be a blessing to your neighbor. Fan into flame the gift that has been given to you and encourage the saints. Keep your eyes ever fixed on Christ Jesus who was crucified and is raised and is now ascended and reigning and conform more and more to the likeness of this Savior through the working of the Holy Spirit because Christ walked the road to the cross to win salvation for you and that leaves us no room for pride in ourselves. But we can boast in Jesus Christ. You see, this kind of preaching no self-respecting Corinthian would have been got dead listening to. It's artless. It has no interesting turn of speech to it that will really excite the ear. You see, they would have been seen in the rarefied air in the company of the sophists, these people who, who were rhetorical masters and they could braid together thoughts and arguments and, and produce these compelling, beautiful arguments that would fill the stadium with, with cheers. And yet preaching, preaching of the plain truth of a crucified Messiah is what God has chosen to lead to life. And God has ordained this means to save his people and to build up his church. He's promised that by his spirit, he will make effective these means for his salvation to go out to all of his elect and for his church to be strengthened and encouraged and built up to walk in the good works set before them. See, the Corinthians' distaste for preaching hasn't really gone away in the modern era, has it? A cursory glance at what passes for gospel proclamation reveals that as humans, we often think we have a better method than God. Maybe something snazzy or something jazzy will bring in the crowds. We're here at the OPC, probably not likely to fall into that. But maybe these people are right, that, that perhaps doing something flamboyant will bring in greater crowds. Maybe they're right. Maybe they will bring in crowds. But Paul's concern isn't about what brings crowds, is it? His concern is what these crowds are being brought to. Because if it's not Jesus Christ and him crucified, Paul says, it's not the gospel. And if it's not the gospel, then what are we doing? 
through the preaching of God's word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, God saves his people. And so having nailed down this point in verse 21, Paul moves on to unpack its implications a bit further. The Jews petition for a sign and the Greeks seek wisdom. Is it wrong to want a sign? Is it wrong to seek wisdom? No. God gives us signs. He gives us bread. He gives us wine. He gives us water that we might see the truth of his gospel. God has ordained signs for us. We might visibly perceive the salvation that he has bought for us. The problem that Paul points to for the Jews is not that a sign is bad in and of itself, but of what the sign is and what the sign points to. You see, the Jews of this period in Israel's history were people whose glory was long in the rearview mirror behind them. They remembered the days of Solomon. They remembered the days of David. And they hoped for a return to this kind of glory. They also remembered the humiliation of the exile, first at the hands of the Assyrians and then at the hands of the Babylonians. They remember coming back from exile under the rule of the Persians to a temple that made people weep because it just wasn't the same. They remembered after living under Persian rule, the Greeks sweeping through like wildfire under Alexander. And suddenly now their land that was holy to the Lord is, is Greek. And they remember Antiochus IV slaughtering pigs on the altar of the Lord in the temple in Jerusalem. And they remembered more recently the failure of the Maccabean revolt to secure their independence and their status. And they longed for something to change. They longed for, for a political power to return so that they could return to those golden days of David and Solomon. But God had planned something far better. God had planned something so, so much better, in fact, that it was completely unacceptable to the Jews. They demanded a different sign. And what of the Greeks? Well, now having the covenant held out to them, freely offered to them, likewise they said they wanted wisdom. Now, is wisdom bad? No. Scripture speaks highly of wisdom. Anyone who's flipped through the pages of Proverbs will come away with the impression, rightly, that God has a high view of wisdom. But the wisdom that the Greeks sought was not the wisdom that Paul held out. They wanted a wisdom that would unlock the secrets of the mysteries of the cosmos. They wanted to understand how to control magic. They were steeped in these traditions of mystery and magic for which Paul had neither time nor patience. This wisdom, Paul says, is foolishness, and these things lead to death. But Paul holds out Christ, the wisdom of God for salvation. And this takes us to our third point in verses 23 to 25, the foolishness of man. See, in verse 23, far from what the Jews sought and the Greeks desired, Paul plants the flag in the sand once more. We proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block, folly. The Jews couldn't believe that their God would humiliate himself for them. They couldn't believe that the Lord of Israel, the covenant named Yahweh of Israel, would take on human flesh and humble himself and become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That wasn't on their radar. But as Paul writes later in, in 1 Corinthians 
the Lord of glory was crucified. Paul applies the divine name to the crucified Messiah, and this makes no sense to them. And thus the gospel becomes a stumbling block for them. But this, this stumbling block, the imagery isn't just of tripping over a doorstep. This is the kind of stumbling block that is used to trip a snare. This is how you catch a rabbit. See, rabbits are pretty easy to catch because they go the same way most of the time. They have the paths that they know are safe. And so if you want to catch one, you put a stumbling block tied to a snare in their path. They walk through it, they hit the stumbling block, it trips the snare, and the rabbit is dinner. That's the kind of stumbling block that the gospel has become for the Jews who reject it. They've rejected their covenant Lord. And so it becomes their snare. See, Paul is saying that like the rabbit inattentive to what lies in its path, the Jews didn't pay attention to the actual events of history that God was unfolding before them. The, they didn't see the truth of what God was doing in Christ. Their God dwells in the splendor of the temple. He doesn't come down in human form. How could he come to the earth, take flesh, and be obedient to death on a cross? They didn't have a category for that. And so they were stumbled. And as for the nations, it's foolishness. See, the Greeks saw that the whole point of religion was to liberate the pure soul from the material fleshly body. The whole point wasn't to be physically raised from the dead. Even if Jesus was raised from the dead, they might have argued. Didn't he know that the whole point was to get away from here? Didn't he know that his goal should have been to escape the prison of the flesh and go back to the unity of the one, like Plato teaches? See, the Greek thought sounds pretty familiar to us today. We think about this, this is the term that, that we'll run into on the street. People say, what do you hope for? And you say, I hope for heaven. They say, okay, what's that look like? And you say, it's disembodied and float. And I don't mean to make light of it, but people have often mistook, mistaken the seriousness of the resurrection for the Christian doctrine. And that's exactly what is foolishness to the Greeks. That's what Paul is preaching. Our hope looks forward to the resurrection, a physical bodily resurrection. And so it's not surprising that the Greeks, expecting that ultimate salvation was freedom from the body, would say, this is foolish. See, the Greeks, like most world religions, taught, be good, do good, and escape. But Jesus Christ did good, he was good, and he came back, raised again and walked once more on the earth before ascending and promising to return again and raise his own people once more bodily to walk in new life. How much sense does that make to the Greeks? But, Paul says, to those who were called, Jews and Greeks, those who might have stumbled or might have considered it foolish, this is the power of God Christ, and he is the wisdom of God. Because the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd, and they know the truth of what Paul is saying. They know that the wisdom of God was made manifest in the flesh. You see, verse 25 says that the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We all want to be wise. Nobody gets out of bed in the morning and says, I can't wait to be foolish today. And Paul's final argument makes it plain. You should and can seek wisdom. You can seek and desire wisdom. You can pursue it. But if you seek it outside of Christ, 
It's like what the preacher says in Ecclesiastes. It's vanity of vanities. If you desire something other than God, then Asaph's word in Psalm 73 make no sense. Whom have I in heaven but you, and the earth has nothing that my heart desires beside you? And if you pursue the things of the world, it leads to death. As John says in 1 John 2, the world is passing away along with all of its desires. But God's foolishness revealed in Christ is wiser than anything we could seek. This is the true wisdom that we should seek. And Paul will go on later to say that this foolishness will shame the wise. This is the wisdom that we find in the God whom we serve. And more than just wisdom, Paul ends with the weakness of God. And nobody likes to be weak. Nobody likes to get out of bed and remember how much easier it was 10 years earlier. But how attractive is strength to us? Most people will naturally follow a strong, charismatic leader. Most people see someone like Arnold Schwarzenegger and think, whatever else is going on, the guy's got something going for him. He must have something to say. People will throng to see great feats of endurance and strength. The crowds that gather at the the finish line of the marathon might prove that to you, or maybe the smaller, more bundled-up crowds at the finish line of the Iditarod. The giant strongmen who can lift up huge boulders and place them up on pedestals on TV. It's, It's fascinating, and it makes us wonder, what's the limit of human strength? But we we know the limit of human strength. We know what waits for us at the end of the day. Shakespeare knew. He put it on the lips of Macbeth. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps at this petty pace from day to day, and all of our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. We know where the strength of man ends, and it ends in the grave. And yet the weakness of God overcame death. And God proved his weakness to be stronger than anything we could imagine by raising Christ Jesus from the dead. So then, how do we live in light of this? Well, first we realize that our message will not likely be met with cheers. We're unlikely to to go and share the gospel. Christ Jesus crucified, buried, raised, ascended, and reigning, and offered freely to you, and hear applause and shouts of approval. We're likely to hear that this sounds pretty crazy. How could God come down to earth and humiliate himself? Don't we all know that the abstract concept of God is just something that societies use to keep themselves running? Don't we know that it's intolerant to proclaim only one way of salvation? Don't we know that nobody who dies comes back to life? You see, the first century response to the gospel wasn't that different than the response we hear today. And yet, by God's grace, we have heard this gospel. And by God's spirit, we're equipped to believe this gospel. And so the power of the gospel in the first century is no different than the power of the gospel today. God, by his spirit, accompanies his preached word about a crucified Messiah and makes it effective for salvation. Second, we ought not place too much stock in what is touted as the latest fad of of church growth or neat, nifty, gimmicky ways to, to package Christ in such a way like feeding a dog medicine hidden in layers of ham that's rolled up. No, we just need the gospel. We just need to hear the gospel week in and week out. We need to remind ourselves of the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to hear that. 
We need to believe it. We need the living water straight from the source. We need Jesus Christ. And so we need to attend diligently to the means of grace that God has given for us to hear this, the word preached and visible. And we need to pray. Because how are we supposed to overcome the pressures like those that we face against the gospel? How are we supposed to be strong enough or wise enough to know how to answer every charge leveled against us? We aren't. But God is, and he is the one who sustains us. And he has given us this very power in his gospel. So let us then diligently attend to this word. Let us spend our time encouraging one another, praying for one another, building one another up in love to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given to us your word, this message of the cross, Christ crucified. Thank you for giving us your word preached that we might hear it and know that salvation is found in you. We ask that you would encourage us, strengthen us, equip us by your spirit, that we might believe more and more, that more and more our wisdom and our strength would fall away as we pursue after the wisdom and strength that are only found in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.